Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Why do Americans love guns so much? I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. We're polarized on seemingly every topic in this country. But the issue of guns is especially thorny. And it's not new. We've been having the same debates with the same talking points for decades. Nothing moves, nothing changes. If there's a stalemate on anything in America, it's guns. I confess to being completely dispirited by the gun debate. Mass shooting after mass shooting and the aftermath is always the same. There's a violent spectacle, people die, the media covers it breathlessly. Politicians on one side send their thoughts and prayers, politicians on the other side make the requisite noises about gun control, and then nothing happens. Rinse, wash, repeat. But that's partly why I wanted to do an episode on guns. Why has the debate essentially been frozen for 30 years. What is it about guns that makes the problem of regulation so intractable? And is anything like a national equilibrium on guns possible? I reached out to Stephen Gutowski, the founder of TheReload.com and someone who's been reporting on guns for a long time. Gutowski is what you might call pro-gun, but that label feels lazy and superficial. He's certainly a defender of gun rights. But this issue is complicated, and we're trying to move beyond two-dimensional caricatures. I can say that Gutowski is one of the more good-faith voices in this space, and that's why I invited him onto the show. This isn't really a debate about guns. I'm not an expert on this, and as you'll hear, I'm genuinely torn on some of the core questions. This is an attempt to understand why the conversation about guns seems impossible and hopefully illuminate some of the blind spots on both sides. So we talk about my own ambivalence on this issue, how he makes sense of America's unique obsession with guns, and if he thinks we can ever break this deadlock and move forward. Steven Gutowski, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, let me kick this off by just asking you why you care so much about this issue. I mean, I'm not sure you'd want to be called an activist, but you know, you're clearly an advocate. So what's the story there? Like, why have you taken this up professionally and personally? Sure. Yeah. I mean, my goal personally is to try and inform people uh, as best I can on the issue and the culture around guns and why people own guns, what purposes, what people who own guns look like, what they do, why they want them. But certainly I think for myself, you know, I'm not shy about being clear on who I am and that I own firearms, that I'm a certified instructor, that I enjoy building guns. I, I enjoy a lot of aspects of firearms, the competition side of it, the precision shooting. And then, you know, there's also a, a sort of philosophical aspect to it that I think you'll find uh, with a lot of gun owners as well that comes out of this American tradition of arms and this perspective of sort of rugged individualism and how firearms ownership plays into that, being able to protect yourself or your loved ones. And that's a big part of, I think, why a lot of people own guns. And it's certainly something that resonates with me. That rugged individualism thing. I mean, is that that really is kind of uniquely American. 
right? I mean, the American interest, obsession, fixation, whatever word you want to use with and on guns is pretty unique in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair to say, honestly, obviously, you know, we're not the only place where people like to think of themselves as self-reliant, but we are a nation that has a very unique relationship with firearms, especially civilian-owned firearms. We actually have the most civilian-owned firearms of any country in the world, and it's really not close. The U.S., there are currently just about 400 million civilian-owned firearms. According to this, you know, this is from a small arms survey. This is a nonprofit, the Graduate Institute of Geneva. They estimate all of the guns in the world, and their most recent survey that they did, it's called the Small Arms Survey, was back in 2017, but it, it shows just how many guns <laughs> there really are in the United States. That's more guns than there are people, and we only gained guns in, in that time, frankly. The most gun sales in a single year actually happened in 2020, so that was well after the survey was taken, so you could expect that number is much larger now. Wow. And even if you go broader than that, if you go out to the total number of guns in circulation, according to the survey, there's one billion back in 2017, but this is the really the best numbers we have. Out of those 1 billion, American civilians alone own nearly 40% of the entire world's stockpile of firearms. Wow. So it's really not something that I think a lot of people truly understand. Americans own so many more guns than the rest of the world. We own more guns than the world's militaries combined as civilians in America. So, you know, obviously there's a unique position here. Okay, that's the reality, right? The guns are real, they're on the streets, we have them, whether we want them or not, they're there. Do you think that's a good thing? I mean, again, this is a purely hypothetical question, but if you had your druthers and you could live in any kind of world you want, would you want to live in a country that had more guns than people? Is that an optimal situation for you? Do you wish it were otherwise, but you just simply accept that that's what it is and you're just kind of proceeding from there? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think guns are an equalizer personally. Obviously, there are terrible things that people can do with guns. They're a tool. What happens with a gun depends on who's using the gun, right? But guns are the great equalizer. This is you know, a reality. If you don't want a world where just the physically dominant can lord over people weaker than them, then I think on the whole, guns are a, a good, a net positive, even when you consider all of the negative things that you know come from the existence of firearms, right? Well, I'm not sure I would agree with that, but I think we'll we'll get to it. But before we get there, let me just start on this side, right? What do you think the biggest blind spots on the left are when it comes to this issue? Because, you know, look, I think there are millions of Americans who probably can't even imagine how guns might play a positive role in someone's life. And I get mm -hmm. that, you know, especially if you've never lived in a place that really values this kind of thing. I grew up in the South, in Southern Mississippi, and although my family wasn't into hunting or guns in particular, I, I knew a lot of people who were, and it meant a lot to their families. I mean, how do you explain this to someone who is reflexively anti-gun or only associates guns with crime and violence? With violence. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I think that's very true. I think people should do their best to try and understand each other and try to understand where they're coming from when you talk about any issue, but especially with firearms, because there are a lot of reasons why people own guns. It doesn't just boil down to, you know, hunting. There's just sort of a stereotype about who owns guns in America, you know, where it's Elmer Fudd type people, right? Who, who are older white guys who like to hunt. And those are the only people who own guns. And so you get a lot of arguments about why you don't need an AR-15 to hunt, or you don't need more than three rounds. The president likes to say this a lot. President Biden likes to say that you don't need more than three rounds because if you take more than three rounds to kill the deer, then you're you're a bad shot and you shouldn't be hunting. You know, you hear these sort of arguments and it's, they completely disregard the myriad of reasons that people own firearms and the very different communities that own them. There's not just one tradition of firearms in America. There's dozens different groups of people own guns for far different reasons. Hunting is certainly one of them, but it is not the only one. It's not even the primary one anymore. People now own guns primarily for personal protection. That is the biggest reason that people give for owning firearms. And there's probably a lot of sub-reasons within that as well. I mean, obviously the reason that 
an African-American might have bought a gun in the wake of the George Floyd killing is different than why someone else might have bought a gun in the wake of the San Bernardino terrorist attacks or something. You know, there's a lot of different reasons, even within that sort of generalized justification for gun ownership of personal protection that you could see. What about the blind spots on the right? I mean, what do you think the pro-gun crowd misses or ignores or overlooks the most? I think that there's often a, a lack of focus on trying to come up with solutions for gun violence. It's often looked at instinctively as uh, attempts to restrict gun ownership or gun rights. And that those are not the only things you can do in order to address gun violence. And I think that there's oftentimes not enough focus from the right on those sorts of solutions that aren't necessarily going to impact the individual's gun rights, but could do more to bring down violence committed with firearms. Yeah, I really do wonder if there's much room inside the gun enthusiast community for self-criticism. I mean, perhaps this is just common to partisans of all stripes on all issues, but I do detect an intransigence on the pro-gun side, or at least an unwillingness to own some of the very real and very difficult trade-offs here when it comes to guns. I think that a lot of it is there's a lot of distrust because oftentimes from the gun rights perspective, when you look across the aisle at gun control activists, they don't really trust what they're being told. And sometimes for good reason, right? I mean, they're told for years that nobody wanted to take your guns away. And then, of course, you've had Beto O'Rourke come along and say exactly that, which is something that people on the gun rights side of the issue had suspected many more gun control activists really believe. There's a real trust issue, right? I mean, and you, of course, you see that too across all sorts of different tribalistic types debates, partisan debates. And even terminology can be extremely divisive, like assault weapon, because this is a political term that has this sort of malleable meaning and doesn't really apply to a category of guns in the sense that a gun you know, enthusiast or owner would understand them, but instead is based off of these oftentimes cosmetic features like you know, pistol grip or telescoping stock or, you know, a handguard or things that aren't vital to the operation of the actual gun itself. But I think there's been a lot of distrust built up over the years and it's hard to break through that. And I'm sure it's, there's similar the other way around as well. And the gun control side often feels like the gun rights side doesn't want to compromise at all. And then the gun rights side feels like they've been compromising for a hundred years and, you see these conflicting points of view all the time in the gun debate. Well, let me just say, this is an important caveat, and I'm obliged to acknowledge it. You know, it really does seem that, depending on your source, when it comes to gun data, you can make the numbers say whatever you want them to say, basically. I mean, there's a lot of contradictory research on this, not really enough research on this. And so it's hard to draw any definitive conclusions. Now, having said that, you know, there is some compelling evidence that guns don't necessarily impede crime or don't reliably make us safer. I'm just curious how you make sense of that data. And if you kind of question that data or are very skeptical of it, how do you respond to people who more generally argue that guns make us less safe? Yeah, no, this is a core argument, right, in this debate over whether or not guns actually make you safer or they actually are it's more dangerous for you to own a gun because you've seen some studies that have suggested the latter uh, and then you've seen surveys that suggest the former there's a bunch of famous research that get thrown around in this debate a lot you get uh, Gary Kleck on the pro-gun side where he's a criminologist out of Florida State University who did a surveys in, in the 90s that indicated there were between two and three million defensive uses of firearms per year. There have been a number of other studies that put the number lower, although there was a, a review from, I believe it was the National Institute of Health under the Obama administration, where they did conclude that whatever numbers you use, the estimate for the number of defensive gun uses per year is going to be higher than the estimate for criminal uses of guns per year. And so that's one way that I would respond to this idea that guns are generally 
making you less safe. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I wonder how, like, you know, a quote defensive use of, of a gun gets kind of categorized or defined. Right. But, I mean, would, that's very controversial, right? It's very controversial. But would you sort of concede that, comparatively speaking, the instances of of uses of guns for self defense is comparatively smaller than the accidental, you know, gun incidents or uses of guns in domestic disputes or suicides, right? Those tend to outweigh, right, the self-defense episodes, right? No, no. Only if you're looking at an outcome where where somebody dies. So if you're talking about justifiable homicide, there are fewer of those perhaps than there are murders or suicides. There's about 40,000 gun deaths a year. Two-thirds of those are suicides. And most of the rest are homicides. There are some accidental shootings there. And accidental shootings are not a large percentage of, of gun deaths. They happen, obviously, and they're terrible and tragic and preventable. But you know, accidental shootings are not a driver of gun deaths in the United States. I would say that this is where the perspective on what counts as defensive gun use comes in and where it gets harder to measure things. It's relatively easy to go and measure how many justifiable homicides there have been in a given area by collecting police data or coroner data. And that's how a lot of those studies that you're referring to will do it. They'll compare justifiable homicides to suicides and intentional homicides. And in that case, you could make that argument. But the problem is that defensive gun uses actually fairly rarely result in death for either party, the person who's defending themselves or the person being shot at. This is why Gary Kleck's number is in the millions Whereas some of these surveys that we're talking about would put the number in perhaps the tens of thousands. And so defensive gun use could be anytime you're using a gun in any way to defend yourself. So whether it results in somebody being killed, whether you shoot at somebody and hit them, but they don't die, whether you shoot at them, but you miss, whether you just display the gun. And a lot of that collection is based off surveys. You're asking people. And so there's always going to be controversy with that kind of survey in that, you know, some of those people maybe were breaking the law when they used their gun in what they're claiming to be self-defense. But I think overall, you still get to a point where you have far more defensive gun uses, legitimate defensive gun uses, than you have criminal gun uses. Well, one thing I should flag here, because I th- <laughs> a lot of people probably don't know this. You know, I know you do. Congress passed a bill in 1996 called the Dickey Amendment that prohibited the use of federal funds to, you know, quote, advocate or promote gun control, which might right. sound marginally reasonable until you realize that the actual effect of that was to eliminate all federal funding to conduct firearm-related research. And I guess sometimes it, it was repealed in 2018, we should say that. Mm-hmm. But my God, I, I wonder, what could we know about guns and gun violence that we don't because of that ban? Well, you know, now you're seeing more money go to these sorts of studies. I don't know that that's going to, like you said at the top of this, I think the perception by a lot of people is that these studies can be made to say whatever people want them to say to some degree. Let me get at this another way. And maybe we can do that by talking about the evolution of the Second Amendment and, you know, how it's understood and defended. It's all very interesting to me. This will become clear, I suspect, over the course of this conversation. But I'm not opposed to the Second Amendment. And the reality is that we do live in a country with more guns than people. And that makes self-defense a legitimate concern. But the Second Amendment was intended to reinforce a, well, quote, well-regulated militia. You know, it was about defending against state tyranny. And you know, I believe D.C. versus Heller, the very kind of famous Supreme Court case in 2008, was the first established legal precedent reading a supposed right of self-defense into the Second Amendment. But I'm actually just curious where you think the limits are. Should basically anyone without a criminal record be able to strap a gun to their hip and kind of go about their day and just call it self-defense? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, right? Uh, what should the limits be? Certainly, um, the president likes to say that no amendment is unlimited. And, and frankly, he's right there now. He, he goes off the rails in other ways uh, when he talks about the Second Amendment. But certainly, I, you'll see, just like you have with the First Amendment, trying to figure out what exactly it protects. I don't think that they're anywhere near the end of working out what the Second Amendment allows and doesn't allow. As far as my personal opinion on what should be allowed, I mean, 
you know, we already have more restrictions than what you alluded to there. Obviously, if you're a felon or you've been convicted of a domestic violence misdemeanor, then you're prohibited from owning guns under federal law forever. Basically, you could have your rights restored, but that's another process. That's a long process. And um, you also have people who have been adjudicated mentally ill. So somebody who's been committed, they can't own firearms. And those things involve due process. They involve having someone go through the proper court process before their rights are stripped away from them because, you know, the Second Amendment is the guarantee of of a right. It's derived from the right of self-defense. And if you deny the means of self-defense, then you're denying the right of self-defense is sort of the core philosophical idea behind all this. But And then if you want to take someone's rights away or infringe upon them, you have to go through due process to do that, to prove that they've done something worthy of removing their rights from them. Now, how far does that extend is, you know, everyone should be able to carry without a permit. That's still a very thorny subject that the court is only just barely scratching the surface of now. It is not the case that everyone who owns a gun knows how to use that gun. There is, for the most part, no training requirement in order to purchase one. But considering that these are lethal machines, should there be? This is what I'll ask Stephen after a quick break. You know, I, I'm a veteran. I was trained to use a, a pistol and a rifle. You know, that was 20 years ago. Yeah, I've barely fired any guns since I left the service. And you know, I don't think I'm prepared to walk around town with a gun on my hip. And that's not because I can't shoot. I can. It's more, it's more that I think possessing a gun changes the dynamics of an interaction profoundly and not being emotionally and psychologically prepared for that responsibility yeah. is dangerous. You know, and, and you know, this yeah. the overwhelming majority of people have far less training than I do. Right. And I think that's where you get into a question of rights versus responsibilities. Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I'm a newspaper publisher and there's a lot of things that you should know before you get into publishing news as well but lest you spread misinformation as this is a common topic that we talk a lot about these days too and there's a lot of things you have responsibilities to do but the question of how government regulation should play into that is separate because you're right you shouldn't be carrying around a gun unless you get training to be competent at doing so unless you know the laws of where you're carrying those are your responsibilities but the question comes in does a government mandate that you get a hunter safety course before you can obtain a permit to carry a gun make a practical difference in the violent crime rate in a state. And I'm much less convinced of that because what I think permit requirements for carrying do ultimately in practice is allow police to search and arrest people based on possession of guns rather than proving they intended to commit any sort of serious crime with them. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I think I'm, part of what I'm doing is trying to distinguish you know, physical and mechanical training from you know, emotional <laughs> maturity, for lack of a better word. You know, sure. Part of my worry is that you know, merely having a gun increases the likelihood that a bad interaction will become a deadly interaction. You know, There are a lot of people who think they'll be safer with a gun, and in some cases, no doubt they would be. If I'm in a building or room or a concert and someone walks into that space with bad intentions and they're armed, I would like to be armed myself, or I would like someone in that room to be armed who has better intentions. Right. But, you know, often pulling a gun in order to neutralize a situation, it just ends up intensifying it. You know, I've seen video after video. There was just a news story mm-hmm. recently where I live where, you know, a freaking gas station feud, right? It's some kind of dispute yeah. over like whose turn it was at the pump turned into very quickly from a couple of middle fingers to someone dead and bleeding on the street. And when you see stuff like that, you know, just what do you think? It just seems so insane to me. Yeah. That we live in a world where that happens. Oh, certainly. I mean, I think this is another aspect of responsibilities. You you have to be emotionally 
competent in order to carry a gun on. You have to understand the effects of that. And that's why people who train others to carry guns, an important aspect of that is training them on their mentality. You know, you you don't carry a gun in order to be able to go to a dangerous place you wouldn't go without your gun. You know, that's sort of the exact opposite of the mentality you need to have as somebody who carries a gun like I do. Your mentality should be the exact opposite. You should be avoiding places where you could end up in a confrontation with someone. Obviously, you can understand the concern of somebody who doesn't carry or doesn't want people to carry. Uh, You know, when they see stories like that happen, road rage incidents are an obvious one. You'll see them occasionally where people will shoot at one another over, you know, getting cut off in traffic. And everyone's been there in terms of like getting really mad while driving around, but taking it to the next level and shooting at somebody over it is obviously insane. And that's something you have to understand whether or not you can handle carrying a gun. How do you approach that from a regulatory standpoint? That's where it gets a lot harder because you could make similar arguments about incitement using speech and how do you avoid something like January 6th, right? Or any of the riots that we saw in 2020 where you had people egging on others to engage in violence or destruction. How do you stop that from a regulatory standpoint? Uh, You know, I don't know. They're obviously bad things. And from a responsibility standpoint, you need to not do them. But yeah, I don't think anyone has uh, sufficient answers for this. I I wish more people who were, you know, maybe on the more pro gun side would think harder about it. I mean, this is part of what I refer to with the trade-offs. But look, you know, zooming back a little bit, you know, Something I'm trying to do in this conversation is I'm trying to make the pro-gun side of the argument more intelligible to people who just don't understand it. And I think most people can understand the general self-defense argument. I think they can intuitively understand why someone may want a secure gun in their home for protection. But what they may not understand, what I don't understand, is the everyday citizen who isn't in any real danger, I don't think, who doesn't work in law enforcement, who feels the need to not just own a gun, but to flaunt it, to signal to everyone that they have it. You know, That's not really about self-defense, I don't think. And it's not about freedom, really. Again, I live in Southern Mississippi right now, and I was just in the grocery store a few weeks ago, and there was a man in front of me who you know, had a, a nine millimeter on his hip. And... I, he did not look like he was particularly trained in any way, but I could be wrong about that. But from my point of view, that guy was either inviting aggression or, to put it charitably, a little insecure and compensating or just posturing in some other way. And I just, that's the thing I don't understand. Like, what the hell is that about? What is going on there? What, what is that guy doing? Is, is he really worried about being assaulted in the produce aisle or is there something else happening there? Yeah, well, first I would say there's obviously disagreements inside of the gun rights community about things like that, things like open carry and some open carry activists and how they choose to go about advocating for open carry in sort of uh, confrontational ways. And one thing I would say is, uh, you know, to the point about why would you want to carry a gun into a grocery store, right? This is a common refrain. I think a lot of people don't understand the mentality of it because they look at it from, what do you think this grocery store is? Some sort of like super dangerous place, uh, you know? And that's really not how, at least from my perspective as somebody who carries, how you think about the world when you're carrying a gun. I don't carry my gun specifically to the grocery store because I think the grocery store is going to be a place that I'm vulnerable to attack. It's more of a mindset of, of preparedness that anything could happen. Certainly you've seen attacks go down anywhere in broad daylight that you can find examples of all these things. It's not that I think it's likely to happen to me in that moment or that day when I'm buying eggs at the grocery store or whatever. It's just the mentality of wanting to be prepared for whatever happens when I'm out in public. And these sorts of incidents could happen. They do happen. And you might have heard this before. It's similar to the idea of you know having a fire extinguisher in your home. You're not expecting to have a fire. You don't have it because you think you're going to start your home on fire. You have it in case that happens you want to be prepared. And that's the mentality of it. And I get that. There's a logic to that. And there's a logic to the preparedness mindset that mm-hmm. I understand. I am a gun owner. I have a gun in my home. And maybe that'll come up sure. again later. You know, I just want to be clear about that. Maybe the real question here is, do you think that there's a, a level of fear and maybe even hysteria that doesn't map onto the reality, right? Do you think that there's a certain segment of the population that is just more scared then they really should be, then is really justified. And maybe they're kind of overreacting based on that level of fear. 
I mean, probably. And then I also think there's probably a segment of the population that's doing the exact opposite, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of, probably maybe even more people who think that in a situation where their life is threatened, that they'll be able to call the police and the police will be able to show up in time to protect them. And I, I think that's much less realistic given police response times than it is somebody who thinks they might have to defend themselves, whether they're at the grocery store or wherever else. Like, there's all kinds of arguments you can get into, rabbit hole arguments in the sort of concealed yeah. carry universe of like, all right, your main gun might malfunction, or what if you get attacked by three people at once and you need more than however many rounds your concealed carry gun has? Or what if your concealed carry gun malfunctions while you're being attacked? Well, you should carry a backup gun for that. You can go down a rabbit hole of preparedness, right, for these scenarios that could happen and maybe have happened, but are extremely unlikely to happen to you. It's sort of, you get to a certain level of, what am I comfortable with preparing for <laughs> in my daily routine? If you're carrying a gun, you should carry a first aid kit because if you're preparing for a shootout, some deadly force situation, well, you should have the medical supplies to prepare for that as well. And a lot of people do carry first aid kits. Yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of this comes back to kind of the, the risk versus benefits, you know, there yeah. <laughs> without going into details. Uh, yeah. There have been a few times in my life where, uh, you know, I've, I've ended up in altercations and, <laughs> You know, um, if I would have had a gun on me, somebody probably would have ended up dead that didn't need to end up dead. And that just would have wrecked probably multiple lives. And I'm glad I didn't sure. have a gun because something well, would have happened that didn't need to happen. You know what I mean? And you have to think through all those possibilities when you're carrying a gun because it's something yeah. that could happen. If, so when I, when I go out, right, I carry a gun, I carry a extra magazine, I carry a tourniquet and hemostatic gauze for stopping bleeding. And I carry pepper spray because that's another thing you have to think about is like, what if you get into an incident where you need some sort of force, but deadly force is not appropriate because you can only use deadly force legally if you reasonably believe that your life or the life of someone around you is in immediate threat or, you know, there's a threat of serious bodily harm, like disfigurement. So there's a lot of scenarios you might run into where you're not justified in pulling your gun. You've talked about some of them here, road rage incidents and so forth, but you might need something. And so that's why I carry pepper spray because I don't want to get into necessarily a fist fight because I, even though I'm six foot one, 250 pounds, like I might run into someone bigger than me or in better shape or better able to uh, handle me in a physical fight. And I don't want to get into a physical fight with anyone. Really, if you're carrying a gun, you have to think through all these things. You can't be lazy about it. You can't be negligent about it. And I understand that that's one of the main concerns of people who don't want others to carry guns is that there are going to be people like that. And I think the question is like, what do you do about it? And this is where I think it's helpful for people who don't come from the standpoint of, uh, you know, necessarily valuing guns as a right or, you know, understanding it from that perspective, like we discussed earlier. I like to think about it from the perspective of a right that you do value, the right to vote or the right to uh, free speech. Well, how do you stop someone from voting when they, they're not knowledgeable about the candidates? You know, should you vote if you know nothing about the candidates? Probably not. But should we try to have a regulation to stop you from voting when you don't have enough information on the candidates? Also, probably not, especially given the history, you know, in the United States of using literacy tests and so forth to disadvantage people, especially, obviously, African-Americans. You've seen the same thing with gun laws in American history, you know, or uh, free speech. There's a lot of people you could, like I mentioned earlier, you could, it's people incite riots, people uh, spread lies and misinformation. Look at all the people lying about the vaccines. It's leading directly to people dying because they believe these lies. And how do you stop that? Well, I don't know that we'd be comfortable with passing a bunch of new laws to repeal the First Amendment and restrict how people speak or make them go through tests to get a special permit to speak. And so that's why uh, I think it's good to look at any proposed regulation that affects the Second Amendment the way you might look at it if it affected the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or you know what have you, the 14th Amendment, and to get an idea, a better idea at least, of where the other side is coming from. Yeah, you know... I'd probably push back on, on the analogy a little bit there because I think guns are kind of in a category of their own because it's quite literally life and death, you know? But look, Yeah, I understand. You could say that about rioting. Sure, right. But I understand. I, I don't think it's apples to apples, but that's fine. Sure. You know, I, look. Yeah, but I just mean from the perspective, you want to understand where people are coming from on the Second Amendment. Yeah. That's how you should look at it. And look, you know, the gun right movement is made up of lots of parts. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. We can just grant that. I would say maybe my biggest problem isn't with the gun rights movement as such, 
but with what seemed to me to be, you know, maybe the most dominant forces within it at the moment, you know, a not insignificant slice of the gun market is driven by people who think they might need to violently overthrow the government, or at least they want to be prepared for that possibility. And I think that mindset has fed a lot of insurrectionist fantasies and has generally been a poison pill for our politics. But because that mindset is very good for the gun business, I worry that a lot of people are invested in reinforcing it. Do you think my concerns there are are misguided? Well, I don't know that the industry is doing much to push those sorts of ideas in marketing or anything necessarily. Um, yes, there are concerns in how some people have pushed for you know new civil war or insurrections or, or whatever that has been clearly an issue over the last several years. And obviously guns play a role in that and this mentality of some people who own guns that plays a role. But to me, it kind of goes more back to just the general American mindset about self-governance and armed overthrow of the government. I mean, this is our unique gun culture here compared to the rest of the world is derived from our unique um, founding, which was through an armed revolution that led to a democratic republic and where the people's voice is paramount to the government, right, in in our system and in our way of doing things. And we got to that point through fighting an armed revolution. Lexington and Concord were literally battles over the attempt by the British army to confiscate arms from the colonists. The shot heard around the world was literally fired over a fight on gun confiscation powder confiscation in that particular case because of the way arms worked in the 18th century. But you get the point here. It's always going to be an issue when your founding document is talking about how the people have the right to throw off a tyrannical government. And then the debate is always going to be, what does that mean exactly in practice? When is the government tyrannical? Now, obviously, most people, myself included, would argue that we are not anywhere near that point as Americans today. But you will, of course, get fringe people who argue the opposite. That's always going to be a tension, I think, in our country. To me, it feels like the basic founding principles feed into the gun culture there more than the other way around. Yeah, I mean, that's, (laughs) and I think this is a case where it does collapse into, I think, fantasy and hysteria pretty quickly, right? You know, I mean, the the idea that like a a state militia here or there is going to (laughs) resist. the military might of the federal government, if it ever came to that is sort of ludicrous, but well, um, I look, I don't, I just, actually don't, I don't want to, I, I said a minute ago that, you know, maybe the gun industry is playing into these sorts of tropes and, and you know, maybe that's not entirely accurate. And maybe more of what I have in mind is an organization like the NRA, you know, if you made the point to me that millions of Americans want and support gun rights and individual members play a, a large role in, in kind of funding the NRA. And I get that. But my main problem with something like the NRA is that I do think that that organization is very invested in tribalizing American politics. I think they're invested in scaring people and playing to the various tropes on the right because that does gin up demand for guns and by extension, their own membership base. And that's that's partly what I worry about. Do you think I'm just completely making that up? Do you not see them playing into some of these kind of political trends that are spiraling towards you know more guns and maybe potentially more violence? Well, I I certainly see them playing into the tribalist aspect of our polarized politics, right? That's clearly happening. Whether or not the NRA is getting people to buy more guns or how how realistic are the fears that they're trying to capitalize on, that sort of thing is an open debate, I suppose. Uh, You know, like I said, there are people who do want to take legitimately want to round up guns in the United States. It's not like a fantasy to say that that's a real thing. I'll just say that the Democratic Party does not want to do that. I know Beto O'Rourke said something stupid, uh, (laughs) but, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer aren't advocating taking people's guns. I I just want to be very clear about that. That's not a plank of the Democratic Party. Well, I mean, it's not in the sense that it's going to happen tomorrow and their black helicopters are going to come down and, and take your guns uh, over the weekend or whatever, like certainly not. Uh, you have seen uh, even Kamala Harris, um, the vice president, agreed with Eric Swalwell during the primary that at least some guns, AR-15s in particular, ought to be part of a mandatory buyback, which is gun confiscation. And I think any fair estimation of it, you know, like it probably wouldn't accompany 
you know, some sort of door-to-door raiding like people fear. Certainly, that's not really how those sorts of policies work in practice. But it's hard to say that the Democratic Party hasn't moved closer to gun confiscation in the last five years, given what some of the positions these politicians have taken. Uh, You know, is there going to be a bill that passes through this Congress to confiscate firearms? No. No, there isn't. It's not going to happen anytime soon in reality. But are there people, and not just fringe people, pushing for that outcome? I mean, March for Our Lives um, is a major gun control group that wants to remove a third of the guns from circulation. That's one of their stated goals, which is over 100 million guns. So I I don't want to get too bogged down into it. I think your basic question was like, is the NRA contributing to tribalization and polarization on this issue? Yeah, sure. Certainly their messaging is. And you could say the same thing for Evertown or, or Giffords or March for Our Lives is doing similar things. They're ramping up fear over permitless gun carry in similar ways. You know, they talk a lot about how untrained people can carry hidden guns. That's how they talk about it. And it's technically true, right? That's not a lie. But a lot of the things the NRA says are also technically true. People do want to take your guns. It's not a lie to say that. It's just that they're amping up what their main donor base's concerns and fears are to, to drive membership and donations. And, and you're seeing it across the board outside of the gun issue as well. You see this, the tribalization and polarization in, in all sorts of organizations. I, I don't think that you're wrong to say it's happening. I, I would just note that it, it happens across the board. Can I just ask though, I mean, do you think, would it be such a terrible thing if we paid people to turn in their guns or at least some of their guns? I mean, would that be, yeah, would that, would that, would that be bad? Not if they want to. Not, not if they would like to. I mean, we have that. Not if we confiscated and made it mandatory, but at least, you know, made that an option. So in theory, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong if somebody wants to, it doesn't violate anyone's rights for the government to offer money to buy someone's guns back voluntarily, right? But we have that already. Cities do that. It just, the problem is it's not effective, especially if your goal is to reduce gun crime, um, especially your sort of everyday sort of gun crime, the everyday murders that occur. People who are committing those murders are not showing up to voluntary buybacks to turn in their guns. You're usually getting people who just have a gun around the house. And, you know, maybe you're reducing to some degree like accidental shootings or stolen guns by getting guns that people no longer want out of their homes, at least not necessarily. See, this thing, I I don't think you're getting them off the streets, right, in the sense that they're not coming out of circulation from groups of people who are using them to commit crimes. You're, you're getting them from like old ladies who have a gun that they don't want anymore in their house. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think it's mostly we can't get rid of the guns, but maybe, you know, it's it's more about looking for ways to, if nothing else, reduce the amount of guns on the street, right? You know, I think someone that might look at the fact that Americans die in disproportionate numbers relative to the rest of the developed world, because we own guns in proportions unparalleled, <laughs> in the developed world, right? And, and they like wonder, what the hell are we doing, right? Why would anyone want more guns or why would anyone resist more regulations given all of these horrors that unfold in our society every day? And to someone who is kind of mystified in that way, you know, what do you say? Yeah, so, you know, that's a common thing you hear a lot, right? And I think the key word there is developed world. And I understand why the people make that comparison, but it seems to me that the point that's usually trying to be made there is that more guns automatically equals more crime or violence. That's just not true because- Maybe um, not more crime or violence, but certainly more death, right? Whether it's some accidental gun deaths or suicides or whatever, right? I mean, more guns mean more people will likely die from some gun-related death of some kind or another. Uh, maybe. Yeah, look, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to completely discount the concept there. One point I want to make on that is just that clearly more guns does not automatically equal more murder, because the United States does not have the highest gun murder rate or murder yeah, rate in the yeah, world. That's fair. And, and to the same point, you do hear often, uh, you know, more guns equals less crime, because uh, if you look at the United States from the 90s to uh, just recently, and even really including the last couple of years, the surge in, in murder that we've seen, you know, you had a lot more gun sales while at the same time you had violent crime rates and the murder rate declining significantly. And so you'll see people make the argument that that means more guns equals less crime. And I don't know that that's actually true either. The truth is probably somewhere much more in the middle. And gun ownership as on a societal level, you know, you're going to have a lot of debate over what really the effect is. But Yeah, look, I, let me just say, I, I, I don't think, I just want to be clear, I, I don't think we have, you know, 
more crime because we have more guns. I think we have a lot of crime in this country for all kinds of socioeconomic reasons that are completely independent of guns. Right. And that's what I would agree on. And, and I think the same is true for suicide as well, because you can look at countries like Japan or Korea, which have extremely strict gun laws and have much higher suicide rates than we have here in the United States. You know, you can also look at, this is a common point that you'll hear from gun control activists, that if someone is attempting suicide, oftentimes they don't succeed on their first attempt and then they don't try again unless they're using a firearm because a firearm in the realm of suicide is a much more likely to result in death, obviously. And so it's not that there's nothing. I just don't like to get to the extremes of things. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know that it's any one factor. I totally, it's almost never any one factor, you know? I guess, like, I've always hated that line, you know, guns aren't the problem. People are the problem. And yes, there is a logic to that. And, and I get it, right? It is a tool, right? It's as good as bad as the person wielding. I understand that. But we don't have more gun deaths in this country because we have more psychopaths. We have more gun deaths because we have more guns, right? I mean, that's also true, right? Uh I guess, it's, you know, then you get into like, we don't have the most gun deaths in the world, even though we have the most civilian guns. So it's like, I understand what you're saying in terms of like, there are obviously going to be trade-offs when it comes to firearm ownership and how much you restrict it one way or the other. Like you're, you're going to have trade-offs to the potential for civilians to resist you know, tyrannical regimes like you see in Hong Kong, right? or China. And you're going to have trade-offs to a less violent society overall, perhaps, than what we have in the United States. Although, obviously, I don't think guns are the only factor that drives that. There's a lot of different factors. I don't want to say that there's no trade-offs, is, is what I'm saying, like you were talking about earlier. Like, certainly, people have to decide what they prefer in terms of the trade-offs. Like, is it more important for you to have a arms population that can resist tyrannical efforts better or is better able on the individual level to protect themselves from bad actors? Or is it better for you to have a reduction in gun suicides or even potentially homicides? I mean, a lot of this stuff is so theoretical though, because it's just like, it's kind of like asking, well, would you, you know, you started off the show with like, would you remove all the guns if you could? And it's like, even if you came down on the side of yes, like, what does that really matter? Because you can't do that in reality. Like, you know, even if you were full-throated supporter of gun confiscation and getting all of them off the streets, out of every home, whatever it took to do that, it's really not possible. No, look, I'm with you on that. I'm a realist on that point. I probably, to the chagrin of some of my friends, you know, and I'll just say again, I am a gun owner. I have a gun in my home, one gun. I have it for protection. Will I ever truly need it? I don't know. Probably not. Hopefully not. But I have it. And yet I also know that statistically, you know, having a gun in the home increases the likelihood of a gun homicide or a gun suicide or gun accident. And and yet I still own one. And I don't quite know what else to say about that, if I'm being honest. I just I just do. Yeah, and I think that's another that's another point too. If you are uh having suicidal ideation and you have a gun in the home, that's a bad combination, right? You or a loved one should do what they can to help convince you to at least temporarily remove the gun from your home. And so like, I don't want to be somebody who tries to sit here and say like, you know, having a gun around is never, uh, there's never any danger associated with that because of course there is. Uh, but I think another thing that people who are staunch gun control advocates who've never owned a gun and don't really talk to or know gun owners is that a lot of people might understand that that's a risk and still say, I would rather have the gun than not have it because, you know, another thing you're getting into when you make these sort of arguments is like trying to tell people what's best for them, even when they disagree with you, which is oftentimes not going to go over well for you, right? Like people might understand that, yeah, in theory, having a gun in my home could be dangerous to myself because if I have suicidal ideation, then, then maybe I'll be more prone to use it against myself. But they're most likely going to understand that risk and think it's worth it to me for a number of reasons. I mean, we're, we're talking heavily about self-defense here, but there's obviously a lot of other reasons to own guns as well. I mean, hunting is a legitimate one, but there's also competitive shooting and even just plinking, shooting at the range. People enjoy that. It's a therapeutic experience for a lot of people, It's and it's fun. Uh, I mean, that's one thing that I think gets underlooked a lot when we talk about guns is that guns are a lot of fun. And I understand how someone who looks at guns and only sees 
the gun murders that happen in the country. And here's someone talking about how guns are fun and they don't understand that, but they are. It's fun to shoot firearms and there's all kinds of different ways to do it and you can compete with it. And that's and there's also the mechanical aspect of firearms that people really enjoy as well. You'll see a lot of crossover between people who like working on their own cars and people who like working on their own guns. Yes, many different kinds of people own guns in America and for many different reasons. And while it is their constitutional right, it is also dangerous. After one last short break, I'll ask Stephen, could Americans evolve to see firearm ownership as less of a right and more of a privilege? You know, in the interest of kind of winding this thing down, you know, I mean, I'll just ask, do you think it's totally implausible that we might in this country evolve, um, however slowly, to see gun ownership not as some inalienable right, but as a truly profound privilege, which would transform how we think about, you know, regulation and control? I mean, you know, something like an Australia-style gun turn-in program even conceivable in America ever? I don't think so, no. It's sort of like asking if we would get the kinds of speech restrictions that they have in England or, or Australia as well. Like, I don't think people would accept that here. I mean, maybe they, you know, look, each generation changes and what they value changes and how we interpret things changes. But I think that gun owners, a large percentage of gun owners, do wholeheartedly agree with the idea that owning guns is a inalienable right that it's inherent to your humanity that you have something to be able to defend yourself with. Now, it's not the only reason to own guns, like I mentioned earlier, but that is the core of it. And I don't think people are going to give that up. And even if you tried to confiscate firearms from people, this is the other part of it, is that that would probably lead to more violence than whatever reduction after the fact would happen. Yeah, no, it it would be an absolute mess. And I just don't think it's practical given the numbers. I mean, there's a million firearms owned by the entire police force of the United States, 4.5 by the entire military, and you're going to round up 400 million. Like, just the practical aspect of that doesn't make it realistic anyway. I mean, just take AR-15s. There's estimated to be 18 million, uh, what the industry calls modern sporting rifles, what, you know, publicly you'll usually hear assault weapons. There's 18 million of those. Even if you confiscated 90% of them, you'd still have 1.8 million, which is almost double the entire police force's entire uh, weapon arsenal. So like like the scale of the numbers, even if you wanted to do it. Yeah, no, I, (laughs) it's pretty daunting. No question. But there's other things you can do. Well, let's just grant and let's just be real, right? I I think people in in cities and people in rural areas are, they're just always going to see the gun issue differently. I think the cultural attitudes are unlikely to converge. But is there some kind of policy equilibrium that maybe could somehow depolarize the issue of guns while also addressing the concerns on both sides? I mean, you know, what's the single most transformative or potentially effective policy idea out there that, you know, could at least dial this thing down a little bit and and, and get us to a more sane, productive place? Because it feels the opposite of that at the moment. And it has for 30 years, as you pointed out. Right. One thing I would note real quick is that that dichotomy does exist certainly between rural and city areas, although you have seen over the last 10 years or so a trend towards more gun ownership in more urban and suburban areas and among more minorities and more women than you had in the past. And you've had a lot of new gun owners recently. I think that's going to have a big effect on gun politics moving forward, depending on how those people, how committed they become to gun rights advocacy over the long term. But I do think that there's actually a lot more common ground than people like to think because we do basically in media just focus on those two policies, you know, universal background checks, assault weapons bans, and we just fight about those over and over. But I think the majority of people likely already agree with what our current gun laws are. You know, those restrictions we talked about earlier, people who are felons or domestic violence, misdemeanor convictions or you know, people adjudicate mentally ill, they can't own firearms. And I think a lot of people support that basic premise 
there's probably a lot more support for permitting of gun carry, you know, requiring a, some sort of training. You know, I think there's broad support for these sorts of policies that are already in place. The disagreement comes over, you know, the expansion of those or the loosening of those restrictions. But one area where I think there's real potential to actually have an effect on your day-to-day gun crimes without causing that sort of deadlock and that stalemate that we've seen is uh, community violence interruption programs, because those tend to focus on trying to intervene with people who are most likely to be involved in violent crimes, right? Especially um, in city settings, in urban settings. And you've seen these programs in places like Oakland and Boston, and you've seen a good bit of success with them. And they don't focus on trying to generally restrict the ownership of certain guns or whatever, that which causes you know a lot of the controversy on the gun rights side. And then they also, they don't use necessarily judicial punishment as a way of deterring crime either. So they're less objectionable to a lot of people on the left as well, a lot of people on the gun control side. And they have shown to be pretty effective and they've started to get a lot of funding in recent years, including from President Biden's budget. And so those sorts of programs that focus on trying to get at the root causes of violence and trying to prevent it at that level, perhaps combined with stricter enforcement of current laws, although that's obviously somewhat more controversial in recent years. But those things, I think you could see some more potential for agreement and those policies actually having a significant impact. Yeah, look... (laughs) I guess I'll I'll just end by saying that, you know, sometimes, and, and I felt this even during this conversation, I worry that I'm too fatalistic on this issue. You know, I keep telling myself that gun culture in America runs too deep to change, that we'll never see guns the way Australia or Britain or Canada does, and that no amount of evidence or bloodshed will change any of that. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Lots of things in this country seemed impossible until they weren't. And maybe this assumption that guns are permanently baked into America's DNA, maybe it's a failure of imagination, something we tell ourselves to justify inaction and paralysis. You know, that a problem is very hard to solve isn't an argument against trying. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, I I view guns as a net positive in society um, personally, but I would also say that you don't necessarily need to see a huge change in American gun culture perspectives on guns to see a positive outcome in violent crime or murder rate or gun crime. Uh, Because, you know, like I noted earlier, you saw that exact thing happen, you know, over the last 30 years, really, you saw this huge reduction in violent crime. It didn't get a lot of uh, media coverage. Uh, We tend to focus more on the the negative, but that happened without, you know, a lot of major gun laws one way or the other going into effect, certainly at the federal level. And I think it suggests that perhaps fighting over guns is not, you know, over gun ownership or gun regulation is not the only way to affect violent crime in the United States. And that's where I think we could have a lot more success focusing on policies that have the potential to bring down those crime rates and save people's lives that aren't stuck in this sort of quagmire that we've been in for 30 years on on federal gun laws. Yeah. You know, look, I, I think that's a good note on which to end. Uh, I just want to say, Stephen, I, I really appreciate you coming on to the show and and having this very difficult conversation. And I encourage anyone, if you want to at least understand the other perspective and get better informed about what's happening in this space, you should go to Stephen's site, thereload.com and, and check that out. And thank you again for, for being here. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I thought this was a good discussion. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. 
We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. 